Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I hope everyone had a great fall weekend. The weather was spectacular here. Uh, my family went hiking in Brown County State Park just south of Indianapolis. It's totally beautiful this time of year. So I had a great weekend, and I hope that you did too. By the way, for those of you who don't know or don't recall, I am now basically recording most of my podcast live. So for those of you who are listening through iTunes, I'm actually streaming this live as I record it onto YouTube. Uh, so if there's some screw-ups in there, there's no editing going on, I'm just going for it. So it's been going okay, so I'm going to keep that up until I make a major screw-up, and then I guess I'll have to, to rethink it. And that gets to the topic that I want to cover today, which is accountability for failures of leadership during COVID, particularly in the response to COVID. There is an emerging consensus in society that we went overboard with the COVID lockdowns. And this is particularly the case with the long-term school closures that occurred in a lot of places and which have objectively and severely set back the education of many kids and frankly puts the future life of many vulnerable children at risk. It's not guaranteed, but we have a major hole to dig out of. As I said, this is becoming a mainstream consensus. To illustrate that, I just had an article come across the wire from the Associated Press. Doesn't get much more mainstream than that. Uh, holding up a copy that I just printed out. It's called Online School Put U.S. Kids Behind. Some adults have regrets. And so I just want to read a couple paragraphs from it, and I will drop a link to this in the show notes because it's a great piece to read. Quote, preliminary test scores around the country confirm what Cargbo witnessed. The longer many students studied remotely, the less they learned. Some educators and parents are questioning decisions in cities from Boston to Chicago to Los Angeles to remain online long after clear evidence emerged that schools weren't COVID-19 super spreaders and months after life-saving adult vaccines became widely available. There are fears for the future of students who don't catch up. They run the risk of never learning to read, long a precursor for dropping out of school. They might never master simple algebra, putting science and tech fields out of reach. The pandemic decline in college attendance could continue to accelerate, crippling the U.S. economy, unquote. And most likely what will happen here is the people who made the decisions to shut down those schools for very long periods of time, as the AP notes, in the face of clear evidence, will suffer no personal or professional negative consequences for doing so. In fact, it is more likely that you will have suffered some sort of negative personal or professional consequence for having opposed those lockdowns at the time than you will for having been one of the people responsible for likely putting thousands of kids onto the school-to-prison pipeline. And this is something that is not partisan. You know, COVID has sort of taken on a partisan valence, but it's really important to note, much of the COVID response was under President Trump. It was the Trump administration who did a lot of this. 
There were a lot of Republican governors, Republican-controlled areas who did these things as well. Democrats too, of course. But this was not a partisan split in COVID response. This is something that had tremendous, widespread, bipartisan agreement in society with very few dissident voices and the dissident voices that were out there, including many highly credentialed people, were really viciously attacked, tarred as spreading misinformation, uh, etc. Megan Basham just had a great article about this in the Daily Wire. I think, unfortunately, it's paywalled now, but maybe I'll drop a link uh, to that in there, too. You know, people who are on faculty at Stanford, right, in this space with great credentials, told that their questioning of these lockdowns uh, was misinformation. It was putting people at risk. And so this was not something where, oh, nobody knew. There were very highly qualified people at the time, a few of them, a few of them, not many of them, but a few of them who spoke up and were ruthlessly crushed. And that's a problem. And this is the same thing that I saw with the Iraq war. The people who critiqued the Iraq war, as they say, never knew where to go to get their reputation back. Pat Buchanan was permanently marginalized by critique of the Iraq war. The people who criticized the Iraq war, by and large, got flushed out of conservatism and never really made it back in. Whereas the neocons have done nothing but flourish. In some respects, George W. Bush's reputation has never been better. Evangelicals who served in his administration in foreign policy-related capacities or you know, speech-making capacities, Peter Weiner, Michael Gerson, these people still enjoy very high prestige, high profile platforms in major media from which they can pontificate and lecture the rest of us just like they did back then, right? So it's amazing that there's been no consequences. In fact, not a single Republican, mainstream Republican, would even admit that the Iraq war was a mistake until Donald Trump ran for president in 2016 and said flat out it was a mistake. Yeah, you could say, well, he was for it at the time. People want to go back and talk about whether he was for it or against it at the time. That distracts from the fact that as late as 2015, it was still the consensus position in the Republican Party that the Iraq war was a worthwhile endeavor, even if it didn't go right. In fact, it was a total disaster of epic proportions that never should have been undertaken. And until Trump came along, people wouldn't even admit that, much less that the people who architected it suffered consequences. So this is a huge problem. There is a lack of consequences for failure in our society that's really plaguing us in important ways. I just put up my notes, and hopefully I didn't just uh, cover up the camera here. Um, Didn't always used to be that way. It didn't always used to be that way. Thomas Ricks, who is a journalist who writes on military history, strategy, military issues, a really interesting guy. He gave a lecture that uh, maybe if I find the, the link to it, I'll put it in the show notes, but I, I don't have it. But he gave a great lecture where he talked about the use of relief in World War II. That is to say, relieving general officers of their command. In World War II, generals got relieved of their command all the time. And he argues that this is, was critical to the victory in World War II. Today, if you get relieved of your command in the military, 
your career is completely over. But in World War II, getting relieved of your command didn't mean that your career was necessarily over. Maybe they relieved you of command because our British allies didn't like you for some reason. Or any, any little thing could happen and you could just be relieved of your command, but you could be right back in the game three months later with a new command. They weren't afraid to change out commanders who weren't getting the job done. So there was accountability there uh, that made sure that we were continuing to make progress on the war aims. Whereas today, we have much, much less of that. Again, to basically be relieved of your command today in the military is to say your career is totally over. And this lack of, you know, sort of accountability that both holds people accountable for the failures and the, you know, not just the things that they did wrong, but simply the failure to produce uh, while allowing people a path back doesn't really exist. So we essentially have very little accountability, but if something does happen, uh, you know, you get destroyed and it's hard to get back in the game. The one area where this still works is, is coaching. If you are a college football coach or an NFL coach or an NBA coach, if you're a coach in big time sports and your team doesn't win games, you are going to get fired. That's what's going to happen because you have to put up W's. If you're not putting up W's, it doesn't matter how nice a guy you is. You are. It doesn't matter. Everything that you did may have been right. The results matter. And if you don't, you're sacked. But if you get sacked, it's generally not the end of the road for you. You could go get a job at a smaller school, maybe. Or, oh, I'm the head coach of the NFL. I got fired. Now I'm going to go have to do a stint as an offensive coordinator under somebody else. Maybe I'll get another head coaching job in the future. It's not the end of the world to get fired as a head coach. If you're not fired, then there's probably something wrong with you. You probably weren't in the business uh, very long because if you spend a long time in that game, basically getting fired just comes with the territory. That's the one area where we still see kind of the old school accountability where you can get sacked for a, a problem and then uh, also still have a path back. There's still some accountability for CEOs. If CEOs don't hit their numbers, if profits are down, they can be fired. However, and of course CEOs can still, you know, be hired back at other companies even after they've been fired. However, generally these CEOs live, leave with some insane golden parachute. So it can be better to fail than to succeed in some cases. And when these CEOs commit really horrible acts, they often get off scot-free. I keep bringing this up, but it's so incredible that Wells Fargo Bank had a scandal. There's even a Wikipedia page on this where they created millions of bogus accounts that customers did not request. And when this was uncovered, of course, they had to pay a big fine, but nothing happened to Wells Fargo Bank. The CEO was able to step down with a golden parachute. No prosecutions. No prosecutions. Nothing. He got away with it. They got away with it scot-free. And then we see that this guy who was the CEO of this uh, clean car truck startup called Nikola just got convicted in federal court of fraud for making some misstatements about his company. Well, let's say maybe he did make some misstatements about his company. So they got him for wire fraud. This guy, who is not one of the, the politically connected, he's one of the handful of, uh, you know, unpopular, unconnected people. They throw the book at this guy. Whereas Wells Fargo Bank and their CEO, who literally committed millions of acts of wire fraud, never even prosecuted at all. This is why I say the rule of law is basically dead in America. If you are a politically favored person, you will not be allowed to suffer any legal consequences. If you're politically disfavored, 
they're going to rewrite the rule book to see you destroyed. Or they'll throw the book at you, selective prosecution, you name it. That's just the, the world we live in. But even CEOs, accountability's not really there. Outside of sports and to some extent CEOs, I mean, uh, there's just so little accountability. It, it, it's crazy. Uh, General Petraeus, you may remember him. He was the architect of the surge. Uh, when he was uh, leading the U.S. Uh, response to the insurgencies in Iraq, the Democrats uh, called him General Betrayus. Of course, there was a big scandal about that, and they had to uh, end up uh, you know, apologizing. Then he got this job as the CIA director, and he actually did betray us in that he gave classified material to his mistress, who was a journalist of some sort, and he ended up getting essentially a slap on the wrist, and now he's right back as a commentator. And again, this is different from a coach who lost some games. This is a guy who committed criminal acts. You know, there's all kinds of people right now, low-level, small-fry people getting sent to jail. Reality winner got sent to five years in prison for linking some data to The Intercept. The guy who exposed the fact that 90% of the people that we kill with our drones were not the intended targets, uh, he's in prison uh, right now. You're somebody like that. You're going to jail. If you're a top general, if you're the head of the CIA, if you're one of these big shots, you can commit horrible crimes that would send other people to jail uh, and nothing will happen to you. And even just be bankable again in very short order, uh, which he is. Another example I like to use here uh, is a guy that I actually really like and admire in a lot of ways, and that's Mitch Daniels. You know, when he was governor of the state of Indiana, he got huge press, and of course, he's done a great job at Purdue. But, you know, when he came in to be governor, he said that his central organizing principle for his administration was to raise the incomes of Hoosiers. We have very low incomes here relative to the country. Well, after he was in office, incomes of Hoosiers relative to the rest of the country actually went down, and it's continued going down. And he didn't suffer reputationally for that at all. There were a couple articles that kind of dinged him for it, and people just make excuses for it. And if you listen to him talk about what were the most influential experiences in his life, he always talks about his time in business. He worked for Eli Lilly Pharmaceutical Company for over a decade. And he's like, that's where I learned the most was it being in business. Well, in business, if you don't hit your number, you're out. In business, if you, especially if you pick your own metric, nobody forced him to pick that metric of raising Hoosier incomes. He's the one that picked his own metric that he encouraged people to measure him by, and then he actually went the wrong way on it. He didn't even not, not only did he not make progress, it actually went backward. And I, I'm not saying that that guy should be fired or anything of that nature, but the fact that nobody even considers it a remote ding on his record, that he completely failed to achieve what he said himself was a central organizing principle of his administration. It's kind of crazy to think about that. Kind of crazy to think about that. And so there's been some discussion online about pastors. You know, how should we think about pastors and their response to COVID? Because in my view, some of them have clearly been caught out as having gone overboard. Not in the sense that they closed things down for too long, but some of them essentially lent their spiritual imprimatur to the response. That is to say, you know, they signed letters telling people to get vaccines. They talked about how if you don't do this or don't do that, you're not loving your neighbor. So this idea that going along with certain actions 
was what was necessary in order to love your neighbor. What that is doing in Christian speak is saying, if you do not do this, you are in sin, you are displeasing God. So they are using their spiritual authority to label compliance with certain acts mandatory, doing what sometimes you hear people say, binding people's consciences. They're not saying that this is uh, something that they uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about, and I strongly recommend that you do this. I think the medical things do this. These are people who said, I'm putting my spiritual stamp of authority on these secular answer, answer, uh, uh, responses. And now we see that many of them were based on bad science. We know that the government engaged in uh, explicit activities to try to suppress uh, information that did not go along with their thing. We know that they lied. A simple one that they lied on was masking. Originally, it's like, don't buy any masks. Don't get a mask. They don't work. N95 masks don't work if they're not properly fitted. I don't know if you remember all that. Then it's like, oh, now you have to wear a mask. And so they basically admitted that they were dishonest at various points uh, along the way. Uh, and they clearly, for example, overstated uh, vaccine efficacy. Guarantee. Joe Biden himself, I think as a candidate, said if you get the vaccine, you won't get the disease. Again, I'm not saying he made that up. He probably was just repeating what people told him. Pfizer, there's still tweets from Pfizer up. We had 100% success rate uh, on our uh, study in South Africa. You can go easily find publications from that era when these vaccines were approved saying that they were 97%, et cetera, effective in preventing infection. Now, I'm not an anti-vax person. I was vaccinated against COVID, uh, but clearly the efficacy of the vaccines were radically overstated. And in fact, vaccine e efficacies declined significantly over time, and, and people are basically now turning away from boosters. I mean, you're not hearing a lot about boosters because it'd be like you need a booster every four months or something to even keep it going. Uh, so they clearly overstated uh, the efficacy of, of these boosters. Uh, so a lot of what these pastors were basically going down on was science that turned out to actually not even be accurate. And so um, I believe pastors who did that or who very publicly staked themselves on these lockdown measures uh, and publicly criticized people who disagreed with them, you know, these kinds of Christian commentator people do need to be held to account. And again, we need to hold people to account in our own organizations for screw-ups and for bad outcomes. And I think we need to go back to World War II. What I'm talking about here is not casting people into the outer darkness and said, you screwed this up, so go away. I never want to hear from you again. You could never work. You have to be fired. I might even say people have to be fired. Um, but there has to be some level uh, of accountability. And if you're not taking some responsibility, then, you know, that's a problem. And you'll just look at the number of people who, to this day, you know, disclaim any responsibility for Mark Driscoll, even though, you know, they invited him into the club, you know, and all this stuff. And they're like, well, it wasn't me. I, mean, I didn't have anything to do with that. It, it's crazy. So yeah, flip my notes over here. I got some notes. Got to keep my notes because I can't just um, make all this uh, perfect here. But um, yeah, what, what do I mean by accountability? Here, here's what I'd say. I have a few things. I think people who made mistakes um, where they were in error, 
not that they screwed something up or did something morally incorrect, but they simply said, look, this turned out to be not correct. They need to publicly disclose where they made errors. And Mitch Daniels, I gave him a little ding earlier, he did a great job at this at Purdue. He wrote his annual letter to the Purdue community, which he does every year. Uh, and he talked about like the first year of COVID and he went through, here's all what we did, here were our accomplishments. And he had a section there. He's like, now let me tell you what we did that didn't work so well. Let me tell you what, what the problems were, basically. And by doing that, you gain so much credibility by saying, hey, let's, let's go through the results and let's see what worked and let's see what didn't work. And let's just be honest about that. And here's what we're going to do going forward. That's massively credibility building. Secondly, there does need to be repentance right, for wrongs committed. And I think that binding people's consciences in areas outside of their competency and sphere of authority is one of those. Those people need to publicly, you know, repent of that. And then they need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, which means what? Don't do it again. Show some future humility uh, on, per, on, on those topics. So, again, I actually had a whole early newsletter, newsletter number seven, I think it was, on accountability for failure that talks about some of this stuff. And I talked about, for example, purity culture and Mark Driscoll and these things that just sort of got memory hold and like, oh, yeah, everybody now admits they were a disaster, but nobody's actually responsible for any of them. And I, again, I want to just say this is not about firing anybody. This is not about trying to like make somebody like pay the ultimate price or something. This is about just taking basic, simple honesty and say, here's what we got wrong. Here's where maybe we did screw up. And here's why we're not going to do that again. Here's what we're doing to make sure we don't do that again. That's one. Now, I do think there probably are some pastors that are going to have to be replaced simply because their churches ended up losing too many people or there were too much internal divisions. And this may be people who actually were, you know, anti-lockdown too. You know, when the results start getting bad and the existing leadership team can't turn it around, then sometimes you got to change horses, uh, even if you didn't do anything wrong. I had a college friend who then worked with me later at Accenture and ended up at a, a fintech company uh, in New York. And this company ran into problems. So it was a software company. And so they had a software licensing uh, uh, aspect. It was obviously their main business. And then they also had a professional services arm. Uh, you know, that did sort of installations, configurations, integrations, all that. My friend was responsible for services. And the sales guys on the software licensing ran into trouble and they weren't hitting their numbers. And so the owners of the company, it was a privately held company, came in, replaced the CEO, and my friend who was running professional services uh, basically got fired too. And again, they, they gave him nice severance. They said, hey, you stick around, you do these things, you help with the transition, we'll give you a great reference, we'll give you severance. And my friend had a very interesting perspective on this because the services business was going great. They were meeting and exceeding all of their metrics. But this guy who had been a turnaround expert uh, at Accenture, he had you know, projects that internally weren't going so well, they often put on him on the turnaround team. He's like, look, when you have a turnaround situation, you got to change the culture. And to change the culture, you have to change the leadership team. And I'm part of the leadership team. And that means they got to replace me, even if objectively, I've been hitting my numbers and that's part of it. So sometimes there is a situation where you do have to change the leadership team, even when maybe not even everybody did anything wrong. It's just a matter of you're not going to be able to rebuild. And to me, 
That's the key. Are you going to be able to move forward with that? And I don't think that's going to be the majority of cases by any means, but a lot of churches took big hits uh, as a result of COVID, especially if you shut down for a lot long time, you lost a lot of people. Some places ended up with a lot of rancor. Uh, sometimes you just can't over, overcome that with the existing leadership team. So again, I do think there nobody should be tarred as a failure uh, for this rendered unemployable. We just have to like set a higher bar in holding ourselves accountable and being able to say, yeah, we got it wrong, and you know we're going to do better in the future, and here's what the steps we're taking. I mean, it's sort of like what Mitch did at Purdue on, on the COVID stuff. Here's what we got wrong. So I think that's what we have to do. And I do think there are structural barriers to better leadership uh, in our country. Uh, why did we—this is like the second part of my, my talk. I, I want to talk to you a little bit. Why did so many people go along with these lockdowns? Why didn't more people and more leaders do something about the schools being shut down for a year and a half, two years in some of these places? Why wasn't there more dissent? Now, again, there was some dissent, but the majority of the dissent was not in the American leadership classes. It was in, again, the populist base uh, for the most part. And I think there are enormous structural barriers to better leadership in America and better handling of situations like this because of the immense pressures that are brought to bear on people in our managerial age to essentially comply with the program. I was thinking about that here in Indianapolis. You know, we weren't the worst on school shutdowns, but we did have some. And of course, you know, the businesses were, you know, back to the office wasn't there for a long time. A lot of them still aren't. And I was just thinking about this. I said, no major civic leader in town probably could have done anything different than, than what was done. If the CEO of one of these companies had said, you know, three or four months into the lockdowns, hey, you know what? We're bringing people back to the office. It was worth shutting down because we didn't know what we're dealing with. Now that we do know what we're dealing with, or now that the vaccine's out, we're bringing people back to work. They probably would have been fired by their board. Uh, you know, you really couldn't have been too far ahead of the herd on that. You know, obviously somebody has to go first and try to bring people back in. But this idea that you could have said, hey, we're not going to do these shutdowns. We're going this different direction. Very good chance the CEO would simply be fired by their board. Uh, just, just, just would. I mean, there's like so many horrible consequences for people who cross the line on matters where there is an official party position. If you go against it, you're going to get there. I only know one company in Indianapolis of any size that did not do remote work for any real period of time. And that was a privately owned real estate developer who essentially um, you know, flew under the radar. He didn't get it. The only people who are really able to take a stand would be someone like an independently elected official who couldn't be fired. But so amazingly, how few of them actually did. Very few people. One guy who went a materially different direction was Ron DeSantis. Right? He said, we're not going to close these schools. You're going to keep these schools open. He was and still is incredibly vilified for that. For two years, they had to do, he had to endure an immense media onslaught talking about how he was killing granny, killing these people, killing kids, putting health at risk, horrible person. Events have completely and conclusively vindicated 
his stand on schools. And in fact, as I just looked from that AP piece, the new mainstream consensus is that he was essentially right. And yet he still gets brutalized every day. Nobody's going to say, oh, I guess Ron DeSantis was right. No, they're never going to give him any credit. And that's what I say. You pay a bigger price for being right than you do for being wrong. And that's a problem in our society. And it doesn't just affect conservatives. There was this uh, journalist who uh, wrote for uh, Mother Jones uh, at one point. His name was Ben Dreyfus. It's actually the actor Richard Dreyfus's son. And he got canceled for something. I don't even know what it was. It's just one of the many people who got canceled. And he just tweeted about how after he was canceled, every single one of his friends abandoned him. Uh, let, me, um, let me just read this tweet to you. Quote, one of the saddest bits about being canceled is you lose friends. I was upset for a long time at Mother Jones for them destroying my income and career, blah, blah, blah. But 18 months on the thing that stings, say 18 months on, the thing that stings the most is that my closest friends for a decade still won't speak to me, unquote. It's like he's a leper. And if we touch the leper, we're going to be made unclean. We'll be outcast. This fact that our leadership class just abandons even their closest friends when the mob comes, it's insane. I, I used this example before and multiple times because it's actually quite disturbing to think about. This woman here in Indianapolis, Jackie Metis, she was the most progressive, left-leaning, major Democratic figure in a county, you know, bar none. She had advanced uh, this human rights ordinance that uh, enshrined LGBT rights uh, in the city, city ordinance uh, code book. Back in 2005, when she was on the city council, she was pushing that. She pushed that through like a decade before Obergefell. And this is in a very conservative state and not a particularly you know, liberal city either in a lot of ways. And then she, she lives in a majority black neighborhood. She helped rescue a black community development corporation. She's super progressive. Anyhow, they made her the head of the library. You know, a couple just disgruntled employees, you know, complained to the media. She's running a plantation. And of course, they chucked her. She's, she was fired. And this is the thing that uh, I find most disturbing. Not a single civic leader in Indianapolis, not a single person publicly defended her. Not one that I can find. Many of these people were her po close personal friends. They would not defend her publicly. Don't know that they did anything privately either. I haven't even heard that anybody was really fighting behind the scenes for her. The minute the mob came for even the most progressive, mainstream, democratic politician in town, everybody abandoned her. And what this shows is the American leadership class does not have a drop of thumos in their body. They are the men without chests that C.S. Lewis talked about. They are totally and completely devoid of courage. And it takes courage now. Because as I said, if you go against the crowd, if you go against the party line, you know, if you go against the mob, you stand a very good chance of being destroyed. So for a lot of these people, I actually don't blame them for not speaking up because it wouldn't have accomplished anything and it simply would have gotten them destroyed because they were in a position that they could not have spoken up on. But there are plenty of people in this town who are independently wealthy, who don't need to, you know, please a corporate board or anything like that. They did nothing. They did nothing. And in the book Zero to One, Peter Thiel wrote the line, it may be the best thing he's ever written when he said, brilliant thinking is rare, 
but courage is an even shorter supply than genius. And he said this in explicating his question that he likes to uh, use in interviews, which is, what important truth do very few people agree with you about? How difficult it is to answer that question. Uh, and that's the problem today. And so part of this is related to, again, the managerial revolution, which I wrote about in Newsletter 63, if you don't know it. People today, the leadership people, are basically bureaucrats, by and large. And when you're a bureaucrat, you just can't stick your head up, you get it chopped out. And that's why the remaining leaders who are not bureaucrats have to take courageous stands in some of these cases, even when it means incredible blowback. You know, people like Ron DeSantis. And so who are the people who are outside of the managerial system who could potentially stand up? Anyone who's financially independent. You don't have to be a billionaire. But if you are someone who has enough money that you don't need to work again, you have the ability to stand up and be counted. Uh, and that doesn't mean you have to do it every time, but like at some point you need to say, this enables me a platform that allows me to be a voice of sanity in at least some cases. People who are independently wealthy. Again, you don't have to be super rich. You just have to have enough. Uh, I would say uh, a tenured professor might be someone there. And of course, today they'll revoke your tenure even. Uh, so tenure ain't what it used to be, but if you're a tenured professor, you can be courageous. Scott Yenner at Boise State, he's taken massive hits for saying very courageous things. Uh, you know, he's he's laid it on the line. He's been drugged through Title IX here. He's all this stuff, man. He says it anyway. Being a tenured professor, though, gives him at least some protection, at least some protection. You know, anybody who has a sort of a non-managerial source of income, right? If you own a bunch of rental houses and that's where your, you know, your money comes from, then you're outside the managerial system, uh, basically. Elected officials uh, are another one, elected officials. Uh, these are people who, uh, you know, like a Ron DeSantis, they don't, they're accountable to the voters. Uh, you know, they at least can't be fired to the next election. <laughs> There's basically nothing you can do. And so there they go. And again, this may or may not be you. One thing I do not want to do is tell people that you need to go charge the machine gun nest. Most people can't do that. Most people have to feed their family. Most people, you know, are working for the man. Let's be honest. Most of us are. And so if you're in that situation, if you're the CEO of a company even, who's got a board, who's all managerial types, your ability to really think different is pretty limited. So we need to understand for people who are in those positions. But if you're outside of that, then we have to create an environment where genuine dissent and debate is possible in our society on these major important issues because if we can't have that debate if we can't have a situation where we can hash it out we're never going to fix the problems that we have right and so what we're going to have basically at the end of the day is we're going to uh, just continue having debacle after debacle after debacle where the people who are responsible for it are going to be the people who uh, basically uh, get rewarded, going to be no accountability, and anybody, the handful of people who do dare speak out against it are going to get crushed. So that is unfortunately the way it is. So let me take a look. Uh, I did see that I got some uh, messages. I see somebody put some, some porn uh, in there. 
And uh, da, 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 did we get an interesting question? Uh, no, no questions, but some good comments on the live stream there. So thank you all. Appreciate people uh, listening today. Uh, but yeah, I think we need to start with ourselves and start with ourselves personally and then start with our own churches and organizations and say, how can we be that beacon of people who have that institutional integrity by being accountable and just being honest with people about where we made an error is <laughs> the first start and say, hey, we're going to do better next time. Again, doesn't have to be firing, but let's do better. And with that, uh, I'll leave it and talk to you next week.